0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. This morning we are in verses 18 through 22. This is on page 809 in the Pew Bible. This morning we see Jesus call his first four disciples. Last week we saw Jesus, as Matthew tells it, Uh, Matthew introduces us us to his public ministry, the public ministry of Jesus. He preaches that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and now he goes out to gather disciples. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll consider how and who and why he gathers them, and we'll consider our own discipleship as well. This is the word of God, Matthew 4, beginning at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of God. May he write it on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father. Thank you. Lift Christ high before our eyes, and as he is lifted up, as you have promised, may he draw all to himself, even in this room. In his name I ask. Amen. There's a story of a young woman who wanted to go to college, and so she filled out her application, but her heart sank when... She read the question on the application blank that asked, Are you a leader? Being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, No. And returned the application, expecting the worst. To her surprise, she received this letter from the congregation, Dear Applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 leaders, we are accepting you because we feel it's imperative that they have at least one follower. Well, Jesus isn't looking for more leaders. He's looking for followers. The church doesn't need more pioneers who launch into the world with great ideas and big ambitions for Jesus it needs disciples it needs followers who sit at his feet and then give themselves of course to service in this passage we learn about the call of these first disciples and we'll consider something about our own call to discipleship and as any good journalist will tell you And I've never been one, but I know that the questions you should ask about events are who, what, when, where, how, and why. Well, we can't ask all those questions today, but let's ask some of them of this, because Jesus is a good journalist here, detailing the story for us. Let's see what he says by way of a few of the questions. Let's ask the question, what is Jesus doing? Who is Jesus calling, and why, or to what end? So in the first place, think about what is Jesus doing? What is he doing? He is establishing his kingdom citizens and his kingdom ambassadors. Jesus, we saw in the last passage, has begun to preach and his message is basically, look, the king is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he commands four men to join up and become a part of that kingdom. It all seems so abrupt, though, as Matthew tells it, so swift, like he appears to them out of nowhere, out of the blue, randomly, it seems, selecting them. Now, that isn't the case, and we'll see that under point two when we think about who these people are. But just notice that Matthew, in driving forward the story, wants you to see that Jesus is a man of action. He preaches the kingdom. Verse 17, the king is here, and then he goes out to call his citizens and his ambassadors to himself. I mean, after all, what is a king without servants? What is a kingdom without citizens? How does a kingdom reveal itself to others without ambassadors? He can't do any of those things. You may remember, as we looked at the passage last week, just prior to this, and if you want to scan your eyes at it, Uh, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 and says Jesus fulfills it. What does he fulfill? He fulfills one who is in Galilee, verse 12, and then in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are two ancient areas of Israel. So that, Jesus went there, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. What was spoken by the prophet? That a light would shine in darkness. That a people who dwelled in darkness would have a great light. Jesus says, I'm the light. I have come to be the light of my people. What Matthew doesn't quote, is the very next few phrases of that passage. He doesn't quote it, but he shows you actually that Jesus fulfills it too because the very next thing in that Isaiah 9 passage is unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government... Will be on his shoulders of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. And Matthew, though he doesn't quote it, shows it. Jesus goes out to establish on his shoulders the weight of the kingdom of heaven, to uphold it. He Carries its growth, its expansion. He presses it forward. And what a relief this is to any of us who are in his kingdom serving in any capacity who imagine that we are in some way, shape, or form the Messiah. Now, in a rational moment, you would never say that you were. But under the pressure and weight of of what God is doing in the world and how He's doing it in and through us together, it is easy to think it is all on us. And nobody can bear that weight. Not a one of us. And we don't have to. The government is on His shoulders and He bears it for us. He establishes His own kingdom. He calls His own disciples. And these first four here... Or men of his choice that he commands to join him. He isn't just kind of throwing out a random invitation. He says, follow me. And they obey him. And he isn't waiting around for this to happen, twiddling his thumbs, wondering if I preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I wonder if anybody will show up. I wonder if anybody will be interested. No, 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 no. As these first disciples will eventually become his apostles and his ambassadors sent by him to represent him to others after Jesus is dead, risen, and ascended into heaven. He isn't leaving who these men will be to chance or fate or the luck of the draw, as if there was such a thing. Nor is he leaving it to the fickle whims of human inclinations which are unreliable. You know that they are as a believer, you wake up every morning with a sheet of ice over your heart and you got to tell yourself, I'm supposed to be warm hearted for Jesus and walk with Jesus. But Jesus, instead of waiting on all that, He takes action, decisive action, and He chooses them. Former President Reagan once had an aunt who took him to a cobbler for a new pair of shoes to have them made. The cobbler asked Reagan, do you want square toes or round toes? And unable to decide, Reagan answered, well, he, he didn't answer. So the cobbler gave him a few days to figure it out. And several days later, the cobbler saw Reagan on the street. And he asked him again, what do you want for your shoes? Reagan couldn't decide. So the shoemaker replied, well, come by in a couple of days. Your shoes will be ready. And when the future president did so, he found one square-toed and one round-toed shoe. This will teach you, said the cobbler, never to let people make decisions for you. I learned right then and there, Reagan said, if you don't make your own decisions, somebody else will. What is Jesus doing here? He's making his own decision. To choose these four as the first of a bunch for his kingdom to be his disciples. It's unusual given the norms of the day. The, The norm of the day was that a Jewish rabbi would have disciples. Those disciples would seek out the rabbi, find them, attach themselves to that rabbi. They would pursue the rabbi. Here Jesus pursues them and so it is that time and again throughout the new testament throughout the book of matthew we're going to see that jesus breaks the mold jesus shatters expectations jesus does things that people don't expect here he says follow me and they obey what a comfort that would have been to those disciples and what a comfort that ought to be that he does the same thing not face to face But if you're a believer, he has spoken to you by his word. He has persuaded your heart that he is the only king and savior in whom you can trust. He has convinced you of your sin and your misery and your need for him. And he has brought you home to himself to follow him, to be saved by him and to serve him. What a comfort this would have been to these disciples when the, king, when the kingdom didn't seem to be going the way that they expected. They start following Jesus and trouble comes, right? They start following Jesus and later the mighty Roman Empire opposes Jesus. A disciple betrays Jesus. Pilate, the governor, uh, conspires with the people and with Herod to have him arrested, tried, beaten, Mocked. You remember the soldiers knelt before him and and said, Hail, King of the Jews, in mockery. You remember that Pilate put a sign above the crucified head of Jesus. Uh, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. All in good fun, right, as they mocked God in the flesh. But before all that happens, in the upper room discourse, John chapter 15, the night... Jesus is betrayed before he is crucified. He meets with his disciples and he reminds them of this passage. John 15 verse 6. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So in that end stage of his ministry on earth, he says trouble's coming. I know what I'm doing. I got you into this. And when the going gets tough and the government stands against my kingdom and when people turn a deaf ear to me and when you go out and preach and nobody's paying attention, you just remember this. This wasn't your idea. This was my idea. I called you, didn't I? And you responded. Others in good time, by my will, will likewise respond for I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. what a comfort that would be to these disciples not knowing but yet about to face great trouble on his behalf now that's the first thing the second is who I mean who are these first disciples notice verse 18 and following while walking by the sea of Galilee he saw two brothers Simon who's called Peter and Andrew his brother they were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen skip down to verse 21 and going from there he saw two other brothers James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets and he called them so two sets of brothers who are not unknown to each other in Luke's gospel chapter 5 verse 10 we learn that Simon and Andrew James and John were actually business partners in the commercial fishing industry. They're known to each other. They work together. And they are not unknown to Jesus and Jesus is not unknown to them. Now reading Matthew, you don't see that, but in John chapter 1 we learn that almost a year prior to this, Andrew and another disciple who's almost who's, who's unnamed but almost is Uh, is almost probably John, the writer of the book of John, the brother of James, this John from Matthew. They're talking with John the Baptist when Jesus walks by and John the Baptist says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. And in John's gospel, we're told that Andrew went and told his brother, his brother Peter, Simon Peter, and says, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to meet Jesus. Jesus. So Andrew and Simon, James and John, have known about Jesus at least since the days of John the Baptist's ministry out in the wilderness. Uh, Some of these disciples were there when Jesus at the wedding in Cana turned the water into wine and many other events. They are known to one another, but they had not yet been called by him. They had not yet given up their work in fishing for him to be his Full-time disciples, so to speak, called by him to this ministry. So Jesus finds them again here at the Sea of Galilee. They've gone back to their boats, and he finds them, but not randomly, not haphazardly. What sort of men are these? What kind of people are the first four? They're two sets of brothers. Let well, me just pause there. That It is a wonderful thing when brothers in a family or brothers and sisters, siblings in a family all walk with Jesus together and share a harmony in Christ together walking with the Lord don't ever take that for granted if that's the blessing of your family it is a gift from God, when it is the case. Many in this room have had it otherwise. Many pray that they might walk one day with their siblings, with the Lord. Many parents in this room pray for their children and bless the children of this church that they would grow up to be true, sincere, genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus. That's what you're training them for. But what a wonderful thing when families, siblings walk together. With Jesus, that's a gift not to be despised. And we learn about these men that they are commercial fishermen, right? Not unsuccessfully so. When James and John drop everything to follow Jesus, we learn from Mark's gospel that they leave their father in the boat with their hired servants who are also fishing with them. So it is at least a multi-family, the family of Zebedee and the family of Simon and Andrew, it's at least a multi-family uh, small business of some kind. We don't know how prosperous, it doesn't seem like that they were rich, but neither should we assume that they were poor just because they were working hard. They were in a vocation that enabled them to feed their families, to sustain themselves, but they worked in it. They didn't just hire others to do it. They, worked, they hired others to help them in that labor. And so they lived by trusting the Lord to provide for them. They weren't independently wealthy, and they weren't destitute nor were they in the schools of the rabbi. Jesus didn't find these disciples, right, uh, walking along with other rabbis, studying like scholars in graduate school, like the Apostle Paul was, who we know studied with the finest of teachers in Israel in his day. He had studied to be a scholar and rabbi in Israel. That's not who these first four are. Doesn't mean they were unintelligent, doesn't mean they were uneducated, but they weren't uh, being fitted for a career in scholarship and academia and teaching. They were common men, hard-working fishermen, not rich, not highly educated, and Jesus found them where? At the Sea of Galilee, not in Jerusalem. He didn't find them in the schools of the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees he didn't find them in the capital city he found them out laboring in a relative obscurity without fame or prominence without a reputation to precede them JC Ryle says Christ sees not as man sees God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise you don't have to be special You don't have to be elite. You don't have to be an academic achiever for Jesus to be interested in you. You don't have to have special skills, special knowledge, special wealth, special gifts, or things to contribute to make you a prime candidate for citizenship in his kingdom. Those things don't disqualify you, but they aren't necessary And in fact, so often it is the opposite, that these things can be, not necessarily, but can be a true hindrance to us. If we put pride in those things, if we think those things make us better than other people, we won't have the proper humility to know that we need our Savior. If we cling to those things like an idolatry, we won't let go of them for the sake of... Of the humility necessary to walk with the Lord. The Apostle Paul put it this way as he reminds believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, why? No human being might boast in the presence of God. It is because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus. So then let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Is that your boast? We just sang two hymns. You've got to get them in the right order. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affection and bound my soul fast. And then we sang, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow Thee destitute despised forsaken thou from hence my all will be do you say that jesus here chooses his disciples that his disciples might choose him and they do follow me he says and they follow him And so let the one who boasts then boast in the Lord. Now the final thing I want you to see is this. Why did Jesus call them? I mean, to what end? Verse 19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He first calls them to follow him and then he calls them to be fishers of men. In other words, they were called to both fellowship with Jesus and responsibility in the kingdom of Jesus, he calls them to follow. In other words, to be with me. Walk with me, Jesus says. Actually, live with me. Travel with me. Listen to me. Be taught by me. Share intimacy with me. I will make you my friend. And he does, he befriends them. Follow me, he says. And before you can be a leader, you need to be a follower. Before you can teach others, you need to be taught. Before you can honor him in service, you need to know him in salvation. Before you can bring others as a fisherman, you need to walk with the Lord yourself by following. And yet as they followed him, he said, I will transform you. I will make you into something you are not. I will make you a fisher of men. And he's obviously playing on their occupation. He's alluding to what they know. They fish for fish. And he picks that imagery up and says, look, follow me. And I'm going to change your priorities. Follow me and you're going to do something different. You're going to go find people. You're going to go find men and women and boys and girls. And you're going to help them follow me too. By proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them. He didn't choose these four because they were ready and useful. He chose them in order to make them ready and useful. And notice the privilege of that. The privilege of being equipped by Jesus to be more like him by sitting with him so that we can better serve him by bringing others you know, you can bring people to Jesus by prayer. I think sometimes it would be easy to overlook that, to think, do I have to go be a, a preacher, Do I have to stand in public or on the street corner or get into a church building and gather a crowd? No. One of the most strategic ways you can bring people to Jesus is to pray for them, to bring their name to the throne of heaven. And to bring the throne of heaven down to them as God answers our prayers for people. So much of the real work of evangelism is done by asking the Lord to do in the hearts of people what only He can do to give them a new heart, to enlighten their eyes to the knowledge of Christ, to pierce into their darkness with the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You can do that. Every one of us can do that by prayer. We can also bring people to Jesus and Jesus to people by proclamation, of course, by sharing the truth with them, winning them over, not through coercion, but through love. Not by a hard sell, but by an honest love for Jesus and people, not by bruising fruit before it's ripe, but by plucking fruit when it is ripe. And the great thing is you don't have to be anyone's savior or messiah to do this. You just have to be likewise a person in need. You're just one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where to find bread. That's discipleship. Fellowship with Jesus and serving Jesus. And that service will cost you. And you see that cost in the lives of these four Notice at verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed Him. That's Andrew and Peter. Verse 21, it cost James and John. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed Him. It was costly for them. Salvation is free. Service is costly. Salvation is a free gift you receive. You can't work your way into being forgiven for your sin. You can't work your way into being forgiven Accepted as right with God. Jesus does that for you and he gives it to you as a gift. Just trust in him and you will be saved and belong to the Lord. He gave everything for you. He gives everything to you. But being saved by him calls you to serve him. We are to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. Now because none of us does that as well as we ought, we always need our Savior. But having that Savior, you're called to live a life worthy of Him. And that will cost you everything. Because nothing can remain more important to you than Him. You're called to make Him your greatest priority. I'm called to make Him my greatest priority. Give Him my time and my talent and my treasure to serve Him in everything I do. Are you saying, Lord, I want to belong to you. I want to be your disciple no matter what the cost. Now, for some of you, that means you're going to have to leave your vocation, and some of that, for you, that, that means you have to stay in your vocation. Some of you are going to be called by the Lord out of whatever it is you're doing, now or in the future, to go and to serve Christ in his church and in mission. And you're going to have to be called to do that full time. It's a good call. It will cost you dearly to do that. There are many things you must give up to engage in that work. But Jesus may not call you out of your vocation. He may call you to serve him in your vocation. To continue to serve him right where you are. Whether you're a homemaker or a business person. Whether you're a teacher or a tradesperson or a farmer or a healthcare worker or a student, at least for now. Perhaps he's calling you to stay exactly right where you are. And yet, in the midst of your calling in life, your vocation in life, he expects you to live differently than you've been living. Because you belong to him. Because you love him. Because the point of what you're doing is not to serve yourself, but to serve him. Him. The point of this passage isn't that everybody needs to leave their work and go be a full-time Christian ministry worker. But it is that everybody needs to follow and serve Jesus full-time, wherever you are. Douglas Macmillan was uh, an evangelist, a minister of the gospel in Britain in the last century, Before he was a Christian, he was a hard-hearted communist and atheist, all against Jesus. And David Patterson, a faithful minister of the gospel, confronted him one day in a village, sat down with him to talk in the house about Christ. And he explained to Douglas the gospel, a gospel that Douglas had heard from his father and his mother's lips year after year, but had rejected there was something new about it when patterson presented the gospel to him and he was warmed to it and warmed to christ and the free offer of salvation through christ and he said are you telling me it's just that easy that i embrace christ and christ receives me because of the work he's done for me on the cross and david said yeah douglas that's true and he said but wait a minute i'm gonna have to change the way i live aren't i I can't go on living the way I've been living. Isn't that right? And David said, yes, that's true, Douglas. And Dave held out his hands. Douglas, in this hand, I'll give you everything you think you're going to have to give up so that you can follow Jesus. And in this hand, I will give you Christ and everything in him. Which is it going to be? And Douglas says he stared at those hands for like 10 minutes. And Patterson says it felt like an hour. I'm sure it felt like eternity. And finally, Douglas said, I'll take Christ. I'll take Christ. Discipleship, the kind of discipleship Jesus calls us to is not easy. It's costly. It will cost you everything. But you will lose nothing of permanent value. You will gain everything. Jim Elliot was right when he quoted a man long before him. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. However great the cost is for following Jesus, the gain is always greater. Peter, later in Matthew, will say to Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, now that's us, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You may give up a lot, but it is nothing to be compared with what you gain. Jesus is inviting you to himself this day. Come, he says, follow me. And those men left their nets And they left their boats, and they left their father, and they left their fishing. Will you follow him? Why would you not? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may it be so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.